while you remain standing. If you would, turn in the scriptures to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We'll be reading just the first 11 verses. Hear the words of the Lord. But a man named Ananias, Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it? that you have conceived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young man got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Lord, the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray this morning that as uh, your word is explained, as your word goes forth, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, Bless the preacher, for his sins are truly many, and help him, help him to communicate this, your word this morning. Uh, bless your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want to, uh, well, first of all, let me point out the title, Don't Fear the Fear. We're going to talk this morning about the fear of the Lord. And uh, I know Seth preached from Acts just a couple years back before we did Genesis, but this is where my mind immediately went when I had the opportunity to preach. So this is where we went. So we'll just, we'll just go for it. Fear, don't fear the fear. But when I say don't fear the fear, I don't mean don't ignore the fear. I think the church needs reminded something of the fear of the Lord. And I do think that's the purpose, purpose of our text. Uh, Now, moving on from last week, we've just come out of the Advent season. Last week, we took an episode from the life and ministry of Christ. This week, we're taking an episode from the early ministry, the early foundation of the church post-Pentecost, but in the life of the early church while it's still in Jerusalem. But before we get to that, I need to talk about something called biblical tension. And I checked with my son this morning to make sure I haven't rode this horse to death. Um... But this idea is so important. So while I have mentioned biblical tension or given as an example in a couple of occasions, I wanted to make sure this morning to start with this and explain it a little bit more fully because when I approach a passage like this, like the fear of the Lord, because Christians don't like to talk about the fear of the Lord. After all, we're saved from sin. We've got nothing to fear left. But I think there's more to it than that. So we need to understand this idea of biblical tension. It's probably one of the greatest things I learned 
in college years ago. It affects every time I read the scriptures, every time I study theology, every time I read our confession, I think the idea of biblical tension, I think it's a helpful guide and you need to learn it. So if you've heard me say it before, good for you. And if you haven't, hear me say it this morning because you need this. This is helpful to you. Biblical tension. It comes from a quote I learned in college from a man named Robertson McQuilkin, who was never one of my teachers, but he was still around on campus when I was there. And he said that it's easier to go to a consistent extreme than it is to stay at the center of biblical tension. Memorize that. Think about that. In the study of the Bible and the study of theology, it's easier to go to a consistent extreme than it is to stay at the center of biblical tension. But just because it's easy doesn't mean that's what you should do. You stay at the center of biblical tension. And this affects our understanding of the scriptures. The center of biblical tension is where you need to be. You resist. You resist the draw to the extremes. Let me give a couple of examples for application's sake. Uh, One, Jesus said, I and the Father are one in which he claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God the Father. Coexistent, co-eternal, all the attributes of deity. I and the Father are one. And the Jews understood it this way because they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Jesus also said, the Father is greater than I. And if you're not someone who submits to the teaching of the Bible, you might look at those things and say, there's a contradiction. We can throw the whole thing out. But it's not a contradiction. And the idea of biblical tension is not that one is true and one is untrue. It's that both are true. Both must be clung to because they are the word of God. Both must be affirmed. And yet, they need to be understood somehow. Not always. Sometimes we cling to the mystery. Now, in the person of Christ, he is the one and only God-man. So in his deity, he is co-equal with the Father, and I and the Father are one is a true statement. But in Jesus, who also came in the flesh, son of David, he is the God-man. And so the Father is greater than I. And so we see the way this apparent contradiction can actually be held to be true. It is the same idea in the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, we have three gods. No, we have three persons, one God. How is that possible? It's not from a human understanding, okay? But if we take the Bible as our foundational truths for how we understand all things, we affirm both truths, that there are three persons and yet one God, and so we worship God in his essential nature as a trinity. And by the way, to go to one extreme or the other leads you in not just to unbalance, but error and heresy. To affirm three persons as if there are three individual gods is a polytheism, a multiple gods. We do not worship multiple gods. The scriptures are clear. God is one. And yet, to go to the other extreme, one God without the three persons, well, what happens then when the scripture speaks of God in different ways at different times, and many people fall into an error called modalism, to where it is one God, but he shows up sometimes as a father, sometimes as a son, sometimes as a spirit. But that's not what the scriptures teach. That leads into error. That leads into heresy. And if you go back to what I said about Jesus, by the way, what are the errors there? If, if the Father is greater than I, and that is true of Jesus and his entire being, then what error do we fall into? Eventually, he is less than God. He is a created being. You know, we fall into the error of Arianism that has been condemned by the church forever, but it shows up century after century 
after century. For instance, in the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim Jesus is greater than man, but he's less than God because he was the first of God's created beings. That is not biblical teaching. Now, without going too far in others, let me just mention a couple of things briefly where we must hold two truths. There's a Latin phrase, simul just et peccator, which means at the same time righteous and sinner. This has to do with the believer. We are at the same time righteous, not righteous in ourselves, but accepted as righteous in God's eyes, declared righteous in our standing before him. And at the same time, we're still a sinner. At the same time, we're still a sinner. We have not been perfected yet, and yet we are accepted as perfect because of the intercession of Christ and the imputation of his righteousness counted as yours. In our doctrine of sanctification, which is an area or a debate going on in the Presbyterian Church in America right now, um, we must affirm that sanctification, the work of God's grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We are being perfected, but we are not yet perfected. And in this, there is an expectation of growth, change, advance, but yet not completeness or perfection here in this life. And to take that, it's not just an imbalance, it eventually leads to error. And then, of course, in the now and not yet, which is one of my favorite, the fact that because Christ has come and has called you to himself, you are now in the kingdom. You are citizens of the kingdom of God, and there are some present realities to that, but not yet in its fullness, because Christ has not come back. And we live in this tension, in this time between the ages where we are not perfect. We do not go on in complete victory at all times and everything. We struggle. We sometimes sin. We sometimes fail. But yet we have the privileges of the kingdom too. We have access to the throne of God. We can pray. You know, we have all these things. So the reality of the kingdom, the reality of the reign of Christ, but not in its fullness yet. The Bible teaches both. We don't deny either. It's not a contradiction. It is not either or, it is both and. That is the idea of biblical tension. And that is important, that is imperative for you to understand, to understand what we're going to look at today. I believe the main point of our passage is a reminder to the church in its infancy, but to the church nonetheless, to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Now let me ask you, Are you comfortable with that? Because you shouldn't be. When I talk about the fear of the Lord, many people like to fall back and say, well, you mean reverence. Of course I mean reverence. That's part of the range of meaning of the fear of the Lord. But that's not all there is. I do believe an understanding of the fear of the Lord needs to be more robust, needs to be more complete, and it, it includes some more extreme ideas than you might be comfortable with. I think the fear of the Lord is missing in the church today. I think we are careless. Understand, I'm not saying this church. I'm not saying you specifically, although if we had to admit it, chances are most of us take God much more lightly than he intends for us to take him. And I think that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. So, fear of the Lord. Before we talk about don't fear the Lord or don't fear the fear, We have to understand the fear of the Lord. It is necessary for us. It is beneficial for us. It is for our good. It is for the good of the world. It is for the good of the world. One of the things we'll see in our passage after our passage is the response of the people outside the church who saw this event within the church, and it affected them. So this 
effect that the fear of the Lord has on the people of God also rolls outside of there and affects the way the world perceives God. And it may act as a restraint to sin. It may act as protection for the church because they don't really know what to make of it all. There's something that they may not understand, but yet they are affected by our understanding of the fear of the Lord. We need to take the fear of the Lord seriously. He is not weightless. It's another phrase I got from a book. I wish it was my own. I love that phrase. God is not weightless. He is consequential. He is heavy. Everything in life has something to do with him, and he ought to be considered in every area of life, or you are treating him as weightless. And again, I think that is Ananias's one of his failures right here. Now, you may object. You may object to Christians understanding the fear of the Lord in some sense that might include even terror. I think you're wrong, but you will point me to verses such as 1 John 4.18 where it tells us that God's love casts out fear for his people, and that's absolutely true. I'm not denying that. Don't hear me deny that. You might uh, go to Hebrews 4.16 where we're instructed to approach the throne of grace with confidence because of the work of our great high priest, and that's absolutely true. I'm not throwing that out or denying that, but I'm telling you somewhere in our theology there needs to be a place for understanding the fear of the Lord. I think both are true. We are to come with confidence. We are to come in fear and trembling. Both are true. And I think that is taught by our text. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text again, but we do need to look through it. Because I, if this is my opinion, we need to throw it away. But if I can prove it from the text, and if it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, then whether you like it or not, you have to wrestle with it. Because God is not weightless. And so if this is his message to the church and to you, then you have to deal with it. So, let's prove the point from the text. First of all, the first word of our text, but. But, I love pointing this out. It's such a simple little word. It's a conjunction. But it's one of those conjunctions that sets an idea or sets what's about to come in contrast to the thing that came before. And so if you look up beginning in verse 34 and 35, it's speaking of life in the early church, the condition of the early church. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who owners of lands and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had a need. This is what's going on in the early church. So it could be said that there was not a poor person among them, because if there was a need, somebody who had means would sell it, give it to the apostles, distribute them to the poor, and needs were met. And if you, you see this several times in the first six chapters of Acts, and you could characterize the life of the early church in Jerusalem as one of beauty, unity, and growth. It's a beautiful thing to see people sharing each other's needs and providing for one another for treating the other person as more important than yourself. Beautiful thing. There's unity as they gave themselves to the teachings of the apostles and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. It's a picture of what the church ought to be. And then it's also a picture of growth. Beauty, unity, and growth. There's your first six chapters because the Lord was daily adding to the number. And part of the character, part of what the people saw of the church was the sharing of needs. And then we're given a specific example in verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have a good example. This is what it looked like. This is how it was being done. And then we come to chapter 5, verse 1, but. So automatically now you know we're going to get another kind of example something set in opposition to what has come before. And so there was a, this man and woman team. 
Ananias and Sapphira. They had agreed together. They are treated together at first in the first couple of verses. They are spoken of as together, but then this thing breaks up into two main episodes where we deal first with Ananias and then Sapphira. We are told at first that they acted in concert, that they plotted to deceive, that they are both liable for what is about to come because they are both involved. And that's in verses 1 and 2. So Ananias comes along first, and he's in front of Peter, and Peter asks him, why would you, why would you conspire? Peter, assumingly informed by the Holy Spirit, accuses him, points out his sin, says, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? He confronts him with his duplicity and his deception. And you'll notice that the sin is not the money. In fact, private property and the right to it and the proceeds from it here is affirmed. The fact that they were sharing was done just simply out of love for one another, not by law, and it certainly was not enforced from the top down. It was voluntary. Okay, Peter really doesn't address the money except that it became the occasion for Ananias and Sapphira to try to deceive. Maybe they saw people patting Barnabas on the back and they wanted that reputation, but yet they couldn't bring themselves to give it all because after all they had an affection for the money or the things of the world. Whatever it was, it's the deception and the lie that Peter points out as their great sin. And he says it's not just to men that you have done this, but to God. It's not just to men, but to God. And then notice also, as an extra note, the deity of the Holy Spirit. He lied to the Holy Spirit, tried to deceive the Holy Spirit. And yet down in verse verse 4 at the very end, you've not lied to men, but to God. Well, Ananias, hearing this, and even though Peter says, why has Satan so filled your heart? So the temptation you know, comes from the, the, Satan, the enemy, the adversary of God's people, and yet the sin... The sin, that which took root, that which was performed, is the guilt of the person who did it. Ananias, though the temptation came from Satan, the sin was from Ananias, conceived in the heart, and the guilt of it is against God. And so, as you can imagine, Ananias drops dead. Now, people like to conjecture, what did they die of? Did he have a heart attack? Did he, you know, we're going to get to... The short answer is God put him to death. What that looked like at the moment, who knows? But upon hearing the declaration from the apostle that you haven't lied to men, you lied to God, this is a bigger deal than you considered, Ananias dropped dead and is quickly buried, quickly. Now, it was very common to bury people quickly back then anyway without refrigeration. But the emphasis here and the fact that we find out that at the end of three hours, the men who went out and buried him were actually already returning. I mean, there was quickly he was put in the ground There's a sense in which people who died in such a way uh, were under the curse of God. And so we had to get them out of here, (laughs) lest the curse spread. So all of this points to the judgment of God. But he drops dead, is quickly buried, and with a result that great fear came over all who heard of it. Great fear came over all who heard of it. Now apparently, Sapphira hadn't heard of it. Because you would think if she did, she would not have come before Peter here in just a few hours' time. So great fear spread, but it spreads in a limited sense at first because the rumor had not yet reached the edges of the town. And so Sapphira's comes in. We shift to her, uh, who had not yet heard. Now, this is typical of Luke, by the way. He gives Sapphira equal billing. You notice? Feminists should love this. Right? Shouldn't they? I mean, in, in ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for the women 
to be judged guilty because of the man's sin and somehow lumped in with him because they were married to him. They were identified with him. But Sapphira's episode stands on its own. And in fact, when Peter first addresses her in verse 8, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. He's establishing her individual guilt. And I don't know if feminism would like that. Okay, but she stood on her own. She's an individual. Luke is very good about emphasizing some members of society who in other ways are, are, are ostracized. And Luke being the author here is, is lifting up Sapphira. It's just a shame that she turned out being put down and put in the ground next to her husband. So, shifting to Sapphira, who had not heard, Peter establishes her guilt. Though perpetrated with a partner, she is, con- she is considered guilty on her own. She is accused in verse 9a of why have you agreed together with, the, with your husband to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. To put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. This is language we find back in the book of Numbers. Those whom God had brought or delivered out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness wanderings. They were accused and their chief sin was constantly putting the Lord to the test. They were constantly whining and complaining against him. They were constantly thinking that in spite of all the miraculous that they had seen, yet God must be weightless and they could pretty much do what they wanted and get away with it. And so they were putting the Lord to the test. And that's what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira, putting the Lord to the test. Thought they could put one over, not just on the people, but on God himself. Even though, just like back then, God had made his work among them obvious, did he not? Did he not send the Spirit at Pentecost? Were the apostles not working miracles? Were they not preaching the gospel? And yet somehow Ananias and Sapphira conceived in their minds that they might put one over on him. Now, I actually think it's worse than that because that actually sounds like actively plotting to deceive God. And some would think that's the greater sin. But I actually think they simply failed to believe who God was and had revealed himself to be. And guilt is greater where revelation is greater. And God had been busy revealing himself in the early church. I think they simply, rather than actively plotting against him, I think they maybe just ignored him. And have you ever been in a room of people wondering why so-and-so won't come up and talk to you? They ignore you? Are you not greatly insulted? I mean, surely you're important enough to be singled out and have someone come speak to you and address you. And yet in this, I think they've just ignored him. They had not, for some reason, come to understand that God is consequential. (laughs) He is not weightless. So like many of us, gave no consideration of God at all and treated him as weightless, gave no thought to the fear of God. And as so with her husband, so with Sapphira, she dropped dead and breathed her last and was buried. And then what is the result? Verse 11, great fear. Great fear came over the whole church and all those who heard of these things. Let me kind of just summarize a couple points of the text then. Ananias and Sapphira, desiring the praise of man, conspired to deceive the church and or God. Or at the very least, they simply ignored God and thought, it's not going to matter, I can do what I want. Their sin ultimately was against God, and they treated him with contempt. And the lesson for the church and those outside of the church, because there's always a lesson. God's always doing more than one thing. So the lesson, this was this is God acting now as a lesson for the church. And I think the lesson is, though not explicitly stated, that we are to remember 
the fear of the Lord. It's clear in our text, though not explicitly stated, that God judged them, that this death of theirs was the judgment of God. This phrase, they breathed their last, is found. In fact, it's an interesting word. It's one of those words that's really rare in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole. Breathed his last only occurs three times. Three times in the New Testament. And how many of them do we have right here? Two. So even if we don't understand the context here as being the judgment of God, I mean, after all, they could have dropped dead of a heart attack. They could have had some sort of episode. But if you turn to chapter 12 in Acts, verse 23, this is the time when Herod is giving a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people, because there had been conflict between Herod and the people, they're crying out as he gives this speech. This is the voice of God and not of a man. I mean, they're basically kissing up. They want things to go well. They want reconciliation. So they're saying this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod did not give glory to God for it. He allowed it. He liked it. And so in verse 20, verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is the judgment of God in the New Testament when this phrase appears. And here... We've seen it twice. We've seen it twice. So between the two episodes basically repeating the same story, between the result being death, which is pictured as the judgment of God, and the result then saying great fear came upon all those who heard, and notice the escalation when we get to the second episode, great fear came upon the whole church and all those who hear. You take all of this together, this is clearly God's judgment, and the message is, remember who you're dealing with. I think this is the message from this episode to the early church. Yes, there's beauty, unity, and growth. But the way this is stationed in the greater context, too, um, it just appears that God's reminding them, remember who you're dealing with. And I think the church today needs reminded to remember who we're dealing with. Like a parent to children. How many people who've had children for any amount of time whatsoever even if you're someone who really lays down the law, manages their household and rides, you know, at some point, a certain child gets comfortable or gets to a new stage in life where he's feeling his oats or whatever, and he, he, he begins to maybe raise his voice or assert his opinion or, <laughs> heaven forbid, he stomp his foot and say, no. And the first thing you say is, now, remember who you're dealing with. I think that's kind of the idea, though, only how much more your father in heaven like a parent to children, and it's not heavy-handed. It is the right thing to do. It is the right thing for the parent to respond in that way because that child needs it. That child needs reminded, and it is for their good. I think that's a picture of what we're seeing here. So let's look at the word itself, fear, just because we should. Fear from the Greek phobos, and here it is modified by another word which just means great fear. So it is not just fear. It's not some little bit of fear, great fear. Okay, it's amplified. But the fear itself, the meaning of this word, in fact, I wrote down a definition. Fear is described as a reaction to man's encounter with force, power, or greatness. And that reaction runs a whole range or a scale of reactions, which goes from spontaneous terror all the way down to honor and respect. All the way down to honor and respect. And if you're like me, you're gravitating right now to honor and respect. 
especially for the believer. I mean, what do we have left to fear of God? It's quite a range of meaning, terror, respect, but where are you more comfortable? Respect. I am. I'm not, this, this, not preaching to the choir. This is me. I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with respect. In fact, most of the time when we talk about the fear of God, when we come across a verse where the context seems to say this is more than just respect, then we use the word reverence. Because that sounds like, well, we're honoring God and we're being very careful before God like we would before royalty or some great person. Okay, But even there, you're kind of comfortable there, are you not? Are you comfortable with the idea of fear as spontaneous terror? (laughs) I think there's some advantage there to that for the believer. I think there's some good in that message. But our reaction to it almost goes, rather than terror, respect, we actually say, we, we actually set up this dichotomy of fear or no fear. And I'm telling you, it's, it's both. It's not fear, no fear, even in the sense of terror, okay? It is this and this. Okay, the, the scriptures teach us clearly that there are times to fear the Lord, even as believers, and times when we should not fear the Lord, or times, situations, settings. So rather than fear and no fear, just like my lesson here on biblical tension, it is not either or, but it is both. It is fear and no fear. People seem to be afraid of the fear. They seem to fear the fear, and hence the title, Don't Fear the Fear. Because if the Scriptures speak it, then that is God speaking, and we need to understand the fear and embrace the fear. Now, in general... The people of God in the scriptures, and there's no way I could write all these down and reference all of them and get you out of here by 12. So I'm leaving it up to you. Go get yourself a concordance. Look up fear. Look up fear of the Lord. Look up fear of God. Look up fear and trembling. Look up the attributes of God and where he is described as great and transcendent and above all of this, where it says that his justice, his judgments are terrible. Okay, There is a legitimate fear here. Go look them up. But in general, the people of God are actually those whom God has taught to fear Him. That's how the Scriptures describe us. We have been taught to fear God. That identifies who we are. He has changed our hearts and opened our eyes, and there is a real sense in which we can understand the fear of God in ways that those outside of the church of God cannot. They're blinded. They don't see. If anything, they have a servile fear that maybe makes them cower before a threat. And so that is the effect of the law that helps restrain evil in society in general. But to know the fear of the Lord, they have to know the Lord. And they don't. You do. So there is a very real sense in which only a believer can understand the fear of the Lord. And we ought not run away from this. So we are described as those who have been taught to fear God. The psalmist even actually prays, Lord, teach me to fear you, as if it's desirable. And yet for unbelievers, it describes them as there is no fear of God before their eyes. We are the people who fear the Lord. Now, like I said, yes, there are verses both ways for the believer. I want to read 1 John 4, 17 and 18. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And again, that's 1 John 
4, 17, and 18. But if we turn to Romans 8, 15, we see that you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So don't come after the church service and tell me, read these verses to remind me that we don't have to fear. I just gave them to you. And there are dozens more. You're right. I'm affirming that. But I'm also affirming places such as 2 Corinthians 7 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Peter 1 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That's fear of the coming judge, fear of the coming judgment. And then here's one that intensifies it a little bit, Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. The presence of God in your life brings the fear of God. Do you understand how great the being is who has drawn you near to him Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. The word trembling there actually means quivering. That's not some honor and respect. It's just not enough. Fear and trembling. There is a place in the Christian life and in the church for the fear of God. It is not terror or respect reverence, confidence, whichever other end of the spectrum you choose, it is this biblical tension. It is terror and respect. It is fear and no fear. Don't fear the fear. This is what God has called you to. It is for our good. It's for our good. It keeps us from sin. It keeps us from sin. It sometimes, yeah, it doesn't just find you into sin and scare you out of it. It can act as a deterrent. If you cultivate at least a certain knowledge of the fear of God, you may avoid sin. You may not find yourself in the condition Ananias and Sapphira found themselves in. Keeps us from sin. It keeps us humble. And again, do you realize who it is who's called you into his presence? You know, where I find humility works itself out as far as theology goes is our approach to Scripture. And it is here where I find some parts of the PCA in error at this current time because they're not coming to the scriptures in humility. They're coming to the scriptures in their experience, thinking that they might find justification in the scriptures for their sin. It's not there. If you come humbly first in the fear of God, your desire is to simply know what God has said, and then you submit your will and your understanding to him, even if it goes against what your heart may desire at the moment keeps us from sin. It keeps us humble. It magnifies the wonder. Magnifies the wonder. There's nobody here who has an adequate picture of God. Nobody has an adequate picture of God. And this is not just a New Testament, an Old Testament versus New Testament thing. Because in Isaiah, remember Isaiah's vision? How did he respond when he saw God seated on the throne in the temple high and lifted up? Woe is me. Woe is me. But then... In Revelation 1, what happened to the Apostle John when he saw a vision of the risen Christ? Fell on his face as though dead. Maybe that's not comfortable, but you've got to admit that will increase the wonder. That will increase the wonder as we see God more fully 
more accurately as he has presented himself. And this should move us to a fuller, more grateful, more humble, more awe-filled worship. And we would say with the psalmist then, what is God that you are, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who is he to take notice of us? Fear. It's healthy. You know, we don't complain about the fear of gravity, do we? You know, we don't say, I'm going to ignore the fear of gravity today, do we? It leads to problems. But we say, we don't have to fear God. No, no, no. Don't fear the fear. You know, as I grew up, I learned that I didn't need to fear my father so long as I did what I was supposed to. Now, if I did wrong, I had every reason to fear my father. My father could be very heavy-handed when justified. I don't say that to shame him at all. There's a place for that. And sometimes, once I had begun to learn my lesson, instead of getting caught in the sin where I needed to fear my father, I thought, whoa, if I do that, my father's going to be displeased. (laughs) And I began to avoid the, the sin, avoid the wrong. Sometimes the fear of him kept me from the wrong. How much more your father in heaven. How much more your father in heaven. So if you find yourself playing too near the fire, attracted to or involved in a sin. And let me tell you, when you read statistics and studies about the the lifestyle in the church versus the lifestyle outside the church, when it comes to lifestyle issues and things that we look at other people and say, oh, that's, that's disgusting, that's outside the bounds, that's sinful. But the lifestyle choices that Christians are making, according to the studies, is almost identical to those outside of the church. It says that we don't even understand the fear of the Lord. How can we expect anybody else to? If you find yourself near the fire or playing in the fire, you need to remember the fear of the Lord. God calls that thing sin. And just because he is silent, he's not silent, he has spoken in his word, but just because you seem to be getting away with it for a time, you need to remember the fear of the Lord. And that's not heavy-handed, that is for your good because your Father loves you. If you are spiritually lethargic, deficient in the spiritual disciplines or the use of the means that God has given to build you up, not to tear you down. If you find yourself picking through the scriptures to justify some action or attitude that you just don't want to let go of, where's your humility? You need to remember the fear of God. And if you find yourself sitting in judgment upon the scriptures rather than humbly accepting it, you need to remember the fear of God. If you find yourself careless about the Lord in any way, shape, or form, or the things of God generally, you need to be reminded the fear of God. And I don't say it to put you down. I don't say it to depress you. I say it to build you up. God communicates this to us. He gives us messages like this to build us up in the faith, to see him more fully. There is such freedom in some ways because of the fear of the Lord. I don't have to decide, is this good for me, is this not good for me? God knows. And he tells me, don't go there. And there can be such freedom there. Okay, Your father loves you, but you need to be reminded. So don't fear the fear. Don't fear the fear. Embrace it. Seek it. Ask like the psalmist did that the Lord would teach you to fear him. It's not either or. It's both and. Look to your father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
and it communicates often to us um, truths that for us are difficult. But help us to hear them with ears that have been opened by your grace, to see them with eyes that have been made to see, but also with wills that would submit in humility. And Lord, teach us, remind us of the basic, the the. the the, the never-ending goodness of God towards his children, that we might trust you in this. Help us to not fear the fear, but to bra- embrace the fear. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.